Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that according to a group called Board of Innovation that studies innovation in, in industry and society, Google searches for the phrase how to reward innovation get six and a half times more results than the phrase how to encourage innovation. Now, that's kind of a cool thing because... Encouraging people to innovate apparently is less interesting than basically saying when you do innovate, good things happen to you. And small nuances in language equals a big difference in results. I believe that rewarding innovation is useful. Uh, However, innovation is something that's a biological process. It's something that is a part of who we are, and it's something that you can actually encourage. So I gave a talk at Bear Mountain uh, here in Victoria, BC, for the World Entrepreneur Forum to a room of about 100 people, mostly senior executives, talking about innovation as a biological process and talking about business innovation, but also where it comes from. Where does it come from in your mind and in your heart? So we've taken this talk and I've turned it into one of those unusual Bulletproof Radio podcasts for you where you'll get to hear my take on something that I've never really talked about on the air. I think you'll enjoy this. There's a lot of biohacking, there's a lot of biology. It's not super deep on the geeky stuff, but it is a different mindset on the difference between an engineer and a non-engineer and on what happens in business. So it's pretty cool stuff. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. 
They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to a hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Steven asked me to come tonight and talk about innovation. I live about 40 minutes north of here on a small organic farm with a, a million dollar human hacking laboratory where the barn used to be, which is my office and where I shoot uh, my internet show and where I innovate. And it's a space that's designed for innovation in terms of, of just making, uh, making me have an environment that's up for that. I moved to Canada about six years ago from Palo Alto. And I played a substantial role in the early innovation of the internet as we know it today. Probably, in retrospect, most impactfully, the first thing ever sold over the internet was sold out of my dorm room. And it was a t-shirt that said, caffeine, my drug of choice. <laughs> it still is. Bulletproof coffee is pretty well known these days, 20-something uh, years later. At the time, it didn't seem very innovative. In fact, they raised my tuition by 900%, and I was hungry, and I was tired of eating burritos that cost a dollar that were frozen. So I said, I better do something about that. And they say necessity is the mother of invention. So I went on to something called Usenet, which doesn't really exist anymore. And that was before we had web browsers. And I said, I like coffee. Let me see what I can do. I'm going to make a product. And then, being a young, egotistical 19-year-old or something, when a professor from Rutgers went online and said, no one's ever going to make money on this internet thing, <laughs> I said, well, I'm just going to University of California. I'm not an Ivy League guy. By the way, I have a word in the now. But <laughs> I'm not an Ivy League guy, but I'm already making money on the internet, so who do you think you are? And within about 20 days, I'd been in 80 publications, starting with the Miami Herald. It's like, this guy's making money on the inner something or another. And a week after that article came out, in the article I said, you shouldn't ever advertise in a community unless you're a part of the community. The first spam on the internet happened. It was predictably attorneys. <laughs> and they spammed every single news group with an ad for free green card services or something like that. The neighbor Cantor and Siegel, and yes, they're going to help. <laughs> I might have accidentally contributed to that too, but these are the very, very early days of the internet. The very first online payment processing, I'll tell you how we did it. People faxed me their checks. That's how we did PayPal before PayPal. Like, like this was ridiculous. And what was holding us back at the time was laws. It wasn't legal to do what we do today for payment processing. They would block you from doing something that was called factoring back then, which was using your payment account to allow someone else to do it, whereas today it's commonly known. And all this time, you don't really know that you're doing something that changes the world until it's gone along pretty far. I'm like, this is great. I'm actually working at Baskin Robbins to pay for some of my bill. You know, 31 flavors, scooping ice cream. You get a really big scooping muscle right here. And I'm selling t-shirts over this inner something or another to 16 countries the first month. And I'm really excited. And it feels big, but not as big as e-commerce. E-commerce doesn't even have a name. 
so you can spot innovation in retrospect a lot more easily than you're likely to see it when it happens. Because for every person doing something like that, there are probably about 5,000 people who are tilting at windmills. And there's nothing wrong with tilting at windmills. In fact, that's also how innovation happens. But the best innovators are tilting at their own windmills because they're convinced it's the right one. Um, so to, to look at it as an investor, it's very hard to tell. And after you've looked at 100 companies, you still can't tell. So I used to sit next to uh, Travis uh, Kalanick, the guy who is CEO of Uber, because we both worked in the content distribution business and it's a form of technology that we still use today uh, in order to, uh, to just get videos and things over the internet. And he hadn't become the CEO of Uber yet, but same sort of thing. I know people who sat down and said, are you kidding, an app to like, call a taxi? You're an idiot, right? And like, obviously we know who the idiot was. Uh, probably not Travis. <laughs> so your radar that says, I'm dealing with Crackpot? Genius. It's tough. And it gets even worse because what if they're both? Like, as a matter of fact, if you ever play the odds, the very best geniuses also are crackpots, aren't they? Like, okay, Thomas Edison's really, really known. Uh, that other guy was named Tesla somewhere or another. Yeah. He's also well known. And the guy who was probably the biggest crackpot at the same time, and also my favorite inventor, is a guy named Royal Rife. Who ever heard of this guy? One person, two people? So Rife and Edison had a lot going on to the point that Edison actually stole some of his stuff from Rife. Uh, he stole some of it from Tesla too, but Tesla stole some of his from Edison. And that's a whole different story about innovation. Uh, what Royal Rife was doing, though, was arguing with these guys over how we should distribute power, he was also hacking the human body more than Tesla was. Uh, to this day, a very small part of what I do at Bulletproof, I make a whole body vibration platform. You stand on it, it vibrates 30 times a second. Okay, did I say crackpot? <laughs> stand on the thing that does this? I, I can tell you, the thing works, although I say I wouldn't mess around with it. But the guy who originated that was hanging out with Edison, and with Tesla, and they didn't know why it worked. They thought it was probably electrical, and it turns out it probably is the electrical and the effect it has on the body. And NASA figured out in the 80s that they could regenerate astronauts when they came back to Earth using this kind of vibration, which is what got my attention and why I decided I'd manufacture something like that. But I kind of fit the mold for a crackpot, right? And also I do quasi-medical things, hacking the human body. I run a neurofeedback center that upgrades human performance in a, in a very unusual way with, with signal processing coming off the head. This is the realm of crazy. Like, seriously, the realm of crazy. A two and a half million dollar facility looks like Xavier's School for the Gifted in Seattle. But I'm, I'm, I passed the sniff test, which is what investors all do. And the sniff test is something that you get from experience that says, there's definitely some crazy in there, but there's probably enough genius that it might be worth an investment and enough ability to execute. So you can have the crazy genius who's more genius than crazy who will never actually make the idea happen because they can't let it go, because they're stuck to it. They have what we would call founderitis which is, I built it, it's my baby, I'm never gonna let it go. 
and it's the same thing as uh, the parents who have the child who's now 24 and can't leave home because <laughs> you're not willing to let it go and do its thing. As uh, an angel investor in Silicon Valley, almost everyone, when they make a little bit of money in Silicon Valley, becomes an angel investor until they get poor again. <laughs> I made $6 million when I was 26 at the company that held Google's first servers. In fact, we had 42 data centers. We invented the co-location business. I was a founder of the consulting group at that company. And some of the biggest names on the internet today got their start in our data centers. And I either helped to build their infrastructure or I ran a program for the University of California teaching engineers how to build this. But I made $6 million and I lost it when I was 28. So for two, two years, I had a lot of money. I didn't lose it all through angel investing. A lot of that was the dot-com crash and things like that. But having invested in a lot of these companies, I always invested in the best technology because I'm a technologist at heart. You know how many times the best technology wins? Almost never. It's the best marketing that wins. And I decided 20 years ago when I saw this and I was horribly offended in Silicon Valley watching, but that one was better. The injustness of it all doesn't really matter because if you can innovate your ass off, and you cannot explain to the world what it does, and you cannot explain to the world that you are trustworthy and that you are worthy of stewardship of the idea that you have cultivated, it doesn't matter if you innovate it because you're not going anywhere. And as an investor or in potential business partnerships today, what I look for is crazy. <laughs> I look for genius and I look for either a lack of ego, or I look for the ability to, uh, to step back and to let go and say, all right, I, I believe that what I'm doing is so important and so impactful that it's going to serve a lot of people uh, that I would be willing to do things even if they're not perfect. Because perfection is the enemy of innovation as well. You can spend 25 years perfecting something or you could spend six days building it good enough to start sharing it. And both of those are extremes of the spectrum. If you do the six day thing, you're probably not gonna like what happens. But if you're on that other spectrum, it doesn't work. So how do you end up in the middle there? I think that comes from mentorship and it comes from experience. Uh, my own path in Silicon Valley uh, taught me a lot. I didn't have any of these clues. I'm a hardcore geek. Uh, my grandparents met in Chicago, the University of Chicago, working on the Manhattan Project. Uh, my grandmother has an advanced degree in nuclear engineering. And my grandfather uh, is a PhD chemist. So I come from this crazy, geeky, scientific family. I, there's really no need to make eye contact. Uh, <laughs> But to go from there uh, to how do you choose this crazy thing like that, it, it comes down to avoiding the extremes but being able to identify them and looking at it as an investor. And now that I've hopefully convinced you that I know a thing or two about innovation and about investing in innovation, I want to talk about where innovation really, really comes from because it's probably not what you think. When I was going to business school, they talk about 
innovation as a business process. And that irritates the hell out of me. Because we're not actually meat robots, as convenient as it would be if we were. What uh, we are is the electrical and chemical and magnetic and many other things. But we have a software layer, and we have an operating system layer. And what I do is I hack human performance. What you didn't hear about is that when I was succeeding on the internet and doing all this stuff in Silicon Valley, I weighed 300 pounds, which, well, we're in Canada, I can talk pounds. I don't have to convert to stone when I go to Europe. It drives me nuts. Uh, anyhow, I also started to get really severe brain fog when I made all this money. Here it is, I ended up leading technology strategy. I did lead due diligence on a $6 billion deal when I was 27 years old, and I was confident to do that, and I was so excited, except when I couldn't remember where I was because my brain was completely fried, and that scared the crap out of me. I bought disability insurance before I was 30 because I didn't know if my brain was going to do this. And here I am, you know, more than a million dollars spent on upgrading this, and 15 years of experience and having become friends with many of the leaders in functional medicine, having run an anti-aging research group for, for years, I did all that stuff because I was kind of afraid. So I turned the hacking of the internet to the hacking of what's going on in the human body. And now I can run circles around the 25-year-olds who work for me. Uh, they can drink me under the table, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> but I can stay up later and wake up earlier if I have to. And I have the energy to bring it now at 43 that I never had when I was 25. And it is absolutely achievable to do this. And I sat down about five years ago as, uh, as the VP, VP of Cloud Security, head of global evangelism for a half a billion dollar internet security company, stock options and all that. And I said, I'm gonna write a blog for myself when I was 18. Because if I had known this stuff, it would have saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of suffering and wasted effort. And maybe five people will read it and maybe they'll take the advice and maybe it'll change their life and I'll have done like a really good service. If someone had done that for me, it would have absolutely changed things for the better. And it turns out more than five people cared. I reached 10 million people a month on my combined platforms right now. And that is, is shocking and amazing. It also means that I've killed at least 100 people if my content is no good, because I've consumed 100 full human lifetimes with the things I've written and the words that I've recorded and distributed. And, and that is a, a ginormous set of responsibility. Uh, and one that I, I actually hold as, a, as like a sacred obligation. It's very easy to broadcast stuff on the internet. It's actually very hard to broadcast quality stuff on the internet that is actually worth listening to and gave something back to the person who, who sees it. So the rest of our talk today is about that, that giving back thing. When I look at what causes innovation in companies, that business process thing, you can stop innovation with the business process. That's very, very straightforward. Uh, we call that finance and accounting. <laughs> and regulatory, and legal, and all those kinds of human resources, whatever they do on that side of the, of the house. Uh, and <laughs> you, you do want to address that. 
but really, innovation is a biological process that happens in your brain. And it starts with the electrons. Because every single thing you do as a human being starts with energy. About, don't quote me on the length of time because it's more than 500 million years ago, so in other words, many, many moons ago, some bacteria got together. And they said, we're going to invade this cell and take it over. They're called mitochondria today. And most of the cells in your body have a thousand bacteria in them that we, in our traditional story of evolution, we talk about these mitochondria, so they're just the power plants of the cells. But what's actually happening, and what we've unveiled just in the last five years mostly, of research about these things is, no, these things are driving the cells. These little bacteria in the cell, they decide if the cell lives or dies, splits or doesn't split, goes this way, goes that way, how much energy it has, and whether they should go to another cell and give energy over there. It sounds to me like they're in charge. I don't know. <laughs> these are the things that sense the environment around you and decide how much energy you have. They also sense the environment inside you. You're stressed and afraid all the time, they know it. And they're like, all right, let's set this guy up to run away from something scary. And let me tell you, if you want to innovate and your biology is set up to run away from something scary, you think you're going to innovate very well? No, you're going to run really well is what you're going to do. In fact, just run faster than the slowest fat guy next to you. That's all you have to do to survive. Right? In fact, let's put on our hats and go back and reverse engineer the problem. Let's design an organism that can live forever. Assume that there is aging. So, there's only three rules you need to have. And these rules are running all of us, including me. Rule number one, eat everything so you don't starve to death. Great rule, right? By the way, are there any bagels left? Okay. Rule number two, run away or kill scary stuff. Right? Okay, you, that's pretty good, you can survive. Uh, rule number three, um, have sex with everything. <laughs> Sorry, hopefully we're not all doing that. But imagine a big Labrador retriever. That's pretty much how they live. Spoiled gutter food. I'll eat that. A leg. I'll hump that. And something scary, I'll run away or I'll bark at it, right? This is what we all do at our operating system level. This is what your meat does, and it's designed that way because this is what makes sure that you'll live long enough to reproduce. That's really all it comes down to. And that ensures the survival of our species. And these mitochondria in your cells have carefully set up the petri dish they live in, called your body, so that you will support them. And these are the rules you have. You think that those rules are you. In fact, you probably feel guilty when you indulge in something, like, I can't believe I ate all of the cake. Uh, or even worse, I can't believe I did that other thing on all of the cake. But whatever it is, there's a lot of behaviors that are fully automated that we assume we decided to do. What you can measure, and what I do measure at the, the Fort Years in Neuroscience Institute in Seattle, is what happens is something happens in the environment around you, your body picks that up, picks it up electrically, and your nervous system senses this thing, and then you think about it, and about two, 300 milliseconds later, you tell yourself what happened and why. Now, no one here in this room has ever accidentally leaned on a hot stove, thought, I should move my hand. 
you leaned on that stove, something moved your hand, and then you said, that was hot, good thing I moved my hand. But you did not think about moving that hand. What moved it? Well, what moved it is these three rules that we all have. Now, the sad thing about these rules is that all of these rules are incredibly energy intensive. It takes you energy to be afraid of things. It takes you energy to go into sympathetic dominant fight or flight mode where you will not be an innovator and to step into this other mode which is called parasympathetic. This is the rest and reset and reflect mode that is a requirement for innovating. A little bit of fear can be helpful for innovating, but learning to put your nervous system in this state is actually hard to do. You can go to a, a monastery, and I spent time in Tibet learning meditation from the masters and things like that. Uh, that's the old way. It takes 20 years or something. Uh, but you can't do it. Uh, and Steve Jobs went and did that. Like The guy hung out in, in ashrams and ate only carrots for months on one end. And that's actually not, not uh, that's a true story. Like He actually did do that sort of stuff. And with technology today, you can change that, that response very quickly. When I work with executives, which I still do on occasion because it keeps me smart, although I'm pretty busy these days with Bulletproof, I always use a $99 sensor that plugs into an iPhone. And in about six weeks, 10 minutes a day, you can learn to take that voice in your head that says, or is that feeling of, or is that feeling of anxiety of where, like, okay, I don't know why I got stressed. I don't know why I reacted that way in a board meeting. I don't know why my middle finger keeps going up when I drive, but it's obviously the other guy's fault. Whatever those things are, you will learn, if you're an average person, 10, 20 minutes a day, six weeks, that there's actually something that happens inside your chest. Your heartbeat changes, but it doesn't get faster or slower. The spacing changes. An animal getting ready to run around, its heartbeat shifts from relatively randomly spaced to very, very even. A person getting ready to have a heart attack has a heartbeat that goes da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Da-dum, da-dum, it's perfectly regular. An animal relaxing on a couch goes da-dum, 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 da-dum. Same number of beats per minute. Very different pattern of beats. Well, you can very quickly learn what it feels like when your heart shifts from, I'm okay, I'm thinking, I'm innovating, I'm creating, to I'm getting ready to kill or run. It is a very subtle feeling, and it's hard to do. But with sensor feedback, it's not that hard to learn whatsoever. And this is called heart rate variability training. And the device, I don't make it. I'm an advisor to the company, an uncompensated, no stockholding advisor, so I have no skin in the game on this. It's called the Heart Math Inner Balance Sensor. So I use this when I'm teaching someone to be a better innovator or a better leader, because hundreds of times a day, the average human unconsciously slips into, I'm going to kill mode. You don't actually kill. It could be I'm going to run mode. It depends if you feel cornered or not. And this programming comes from about the first seven years of your life. Because those first seven years of life are all about pattern recognition. And my uh, 
undergraduate degree is in decision support systems. It's a subset of artificial intelligence and pattern recognition is how we run the whole internet these days. It's the same thing for our bodies. So if when you were six, you fell off the swing and you were falling backwards and you felt like you didn't have control and then there was a panic from your parents, there's a very good chance that when you lean back or when you get on an airplane, you're gonna have a panic response. It's entirely programmed. It has nothing to do with how good of a person you are and you go to the boardroom. Oh, yeah, that triggered that same feeling. No, you didn't think about it. It was the same feeling that happened in that time when we were bullied in second grade. And we see this behavior in boardrooms all the time. And if you go into engineering where they're doing some innovation stuff, you'd probably see even more of this because engineers spend most of their time living in their heads oftentimes because they didn't want to deal with all this other crap. So you get a lot of cerebral stuff. Whereas the most effective engineers spend an equal amount of time, just like the most effective CEOs. They're half in their head and they're half in their heart. They recognize that there is environmental input information from the world around them that comes into the nervous system that is processed more quickly than you can think about it. In other words, what really is happening is the information comes in, our body does what it's going to do, and then we decide why we did it. But that's totally a lie, and it's a lie that's teachable. When you learn that there is value in this, your intuition gets unlocked. I've spent 10 weeks of my life with electrodes glued to my head, doing the 40 years of Zen training, where I've carefully learned to line up the peaks and troughs of different brainwaves, as well as to raise the height of my brainwaves. The amplitude of my brainwaves is four times higher than it was when I started training my brain 20 years ago. And I do that because it allows me to, to know when my intuition and my nervous system is detecting that there is something interesting and novel and, and new here, and to be able to actually act on that. Before I learned to do that, I was a classical engineer, and the whole point of it was to think about it. You shut all of this crap off because it's a very noisy system. There's all this weird environmental input and, and like just fear and loathing and anger and God knows what else is out there. Uh, so just ignore all that stuff and just think. You can't think to innovation. It doesn't work like that. You feel to innovation, and then you apply thought and logic and science on top of it, but you don't break new ground. You go over existing ground. All you do is think. Now, imagine those three things that you do. Well, one of them, we just kind of conquered. I, I taught you a way is this $100 sensor that you could do. You could also just learn some breathing exercises that will lower your sympathetic nervous system response and increase your parasympathetic. In fact, I'll teach you guys one of those. You want to learn it? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Here's why I wish someone had taught me this when I was 16. By the way, my nine-year-old knows how to do it now. I was born with the core ground on my neck. So I came into the world with the conscious programming or unconscious programming that said, there's probably something here trying to kill you. Well, because I was, you know, you have no context, you're a baby, you don't have a prefrontal cortex, your brain doesn't really work very well. So I actually had a lot of parasympathetic, or sorry, a lot of sympathetic fight or flight response that was always on for no reason that I could see or remember or sense or, or fear. And I've reprogrammed all that stuff. But this is one of the fastest ways you can do it. And it's what they teach the special forces, and it's also what they teach in yoga studios. And it's called a box breath. And all you do, and I'll walk you through in a second, but first I'm going to describe it for you. I'm going to tell you to breathe in for about five seconds. You're going to hold your breath for about five seconds. You're going to breathe out for about five seconds. 
And then, if you can do it, you're gonna hold your breath empty for five seconds. Most of the time, unless you've done some breathing exercises, holding your breath empty for five seconds will trigger a I'm going to die response. It's a total lie, by the way, but your body is telling you I'm gonna die. Anytime you feel that response, unless you're actually going to die, you should like explore that and keep pushing that button until it isn't labeled anymore. You'll be a, a nicer person for doing it. So you ready to do it? Yeah. All right. So we're going to empty your lungs and breathe in through your nose to a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. We're going to hold. One, two, three, four, five. Now we're going to slowly exhale. One, two, three, four, five. Now we're going to hold it empty. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> 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 Laughter's the best mess, right? Now, if you do that three or four times at bedtime, especially if you're one of the people who has a hard time going to sleep, you actually can go to sleep faster. And this is a neat hack that someone figured out probably a thousand years ago in India, and it literally can take you from, I really want to kill that guy, I can't believe he did that, I can't believe the deal's going this way, like what, what's going on here? It can take you to, I'm going to do the right thing here. And, and I've seen such atrocious behavior in boardrooms when people get triggered by stuff that they're not aware of, that if they just have that one technique, not to mention all the other cool tech stuff you could do, uh, then it actually changes outcomes for the better. This is just basic self-awareness, but it's awareness not of what I'm thinking, but awareness of what I'm feeling. So, now we've hacked our, I want to run away, or I want to kill things response reasonably enough. If you were to spend 20% less of those that precious mitochondrial energy, those electrons your cells are making all the time, if you spend 20% less getting ready to run away or to kill things, what would you do with that extra energy? Make something cool? Just, just thought. <laughs> That's why innovation is an energetic biological process. If you're using all of your energy on other stuff, it doesn't work. And let's talk about food. It is a biological emergency if your brain doesn't have enough energy. You have blood sugar that's going up, down, up, down. By the way, if you eat like most people eat, thanks to some mistakes we made in public policy 40 years ago, lots and lots of sugar and bad fats and uh, really not much else, you're going to have fluctuations of blood sugar. Every time your blood sugar starts to drop, we talked about mitochondria, and I said a thousand per cell, there's an asterisk on that. Your eyes, your brain, and your heart have 10,000 power plants per cell. They're the big energy consumers in the body. If your heart can't beat, you die. If you can't think, you die. If you can't see, well, you might not die for a little while, but something will probably eat you. <laughs> so those are kind of mission-critical, power-intensive systems, and they're excessively engineered. And if there is a disruption in energy supply to those, the coal trucks stop rolling, it is a biological emergency, and your body will kick right over into, oh my god, I'm dying mode. And it'll trigger a cortisol spike, which is the death hormone. It's also a useful hormone if you're sick. And it'll trigger an adrenal spike, which is good, because cortisol and adrenaline will deliver fuel. It's basically like picking up the phone and calling the 
uh, the premier and saying, uh, could you send in the helicopters with extra oil because I don't want to shut down production right now? Like, you're, you're calling in the big guns. Your body will do this every afternoon at 2 o'clock if your nutrition isn't the way it needs to be. And every time you do that, it takes you out of I'm here to innovate mode, puts you back in emergency mode, and even worse, you don't have energy because it's an actual energetic problem that caused the emergency. And we get this weird other thing that happens. As the energy starts to dwindle just a little bit, something interesting happens in your head. A little voice pops up. I like to call it the Labrador in my head because we've all seen a Labrador beg for a, any kind of food on the planet. And it, it's something like this. Energy isn't quite sufficient, or it, it's usually not sufficient. So you're sitting down at the conference table, and someone walks in and sets a nice plate of cookies down. I think it's at 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. And a voice comes in your head right away and goes, eat the cookie. Right? And you go, no. About three seconds later, the voice says, eat the cookie. No. And an inner dialogue goes on that lasts usually about 15 minutes. And it sounds like this, eat the cookie, no, eat the cookie, no, eat the cookie, no. Until you go, maybe I'll just have half. And then you do it. And then you're a bad person, right? You gave in. Except you're not a bad person. Because the desire for the cookie came because the things that call the shots, these little mitochondria that run you, they, were, they wanted energy. They needed energy. And it's actually OK that they wanted it. The fact that they wanted energy that wasn't good for you is because they're bacteria. They're stupid. <laughs> right? But they wanted energy, and it was right for your system to want that energy. There's an amazing study about that ability to say no. And it had to do with decision fatigue. How many of you have heard of decision fatigue? Interesting, it's more than all, about 10% of people. Decision fatigue is a measurable thing. We didn't know this until about 10 years ago, but you have a finite amount of willpower. You have X number of decisions you can make per day before you are unable to biologically make any more good decisions. It's not a matter of wanting to do it. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of how good a person you are. It is a matter of how good you are at managing the energy in your biology. What proved this most amazingly was a group in Israel. And they looked at prisons. And they said, I wonder if we can find some interesting data about who gets parole. And they said, all right, let's look at this. And what they found was, if you want to get out of jail, get the 8.30 a.m. time slot with the parole board, first decision of the day. You had a 90% chance of getting parole. Want to stay in jail, get the free meals every day kind of thing? Get the 4.30 p.m. parole board. You have a 90% chance of them saying you stay in jail. 90% on either side? This is decision-making fatigue. This is willpower in action. You have the same thing. And this isn't to say you're weaker at 4.30. Some of us are stronger at 4.30 than we are at 8.30. Don't ask me to do anything at 8.30. I don't care how much coffee I have. I'm a night person. There are other people who, if I asked them to work with me at 11 p.m., they would completely be zombified. And neither one of those settings is better. It's just a, a circadian rhythm thing. But what is true is if you ask either one of us to take any eight hours a day and make decisions constantly, we'll run out of energy. Guess what you're doing every time you tell the voice in your head no about cookies? You're making a decision. 
Like, oh my God. You want to change the world, you want to innovate, you want to make something amazing. So instead of making something amazing, now you're spending a bunch of your time going, should I run away from that? Is that dangerous? Should I kill it? And then you're spending your time going, no, bad cookie, no cookie for you. And then an attractive member of the opposite sex walks in, and you might think about that for a while too. No wonder it's hard to innovate. Right? So, what I will offer you today is, on top of this heart rate variability thing, or just that simple box breath that can take you out of I want to kill mode, which wastes energy and maybe waste decisions, but mostly it just wastes electrons and puts you back in charge in, in the parasympathetic dominant, the rest and reflect and reset mode, is I'll we'll tell you something about food. And it's awesome and amazing. It's also creamy and delicious. A molecule of sugar has 36 electrons for you to use in it. A molecule of fat has 147 electrons for you to use in it. You want to kick ass and change the world on popsicles and fruit juice and, for God's sake, kale? <laughs> That's not how it works. Innovation runs on bacon and butter. It actually does. You cannot have a high-functioning brain in an environment that is devoid of high-quality, undamaged fats. It is necessary. I've read a New York Times best-selling book with a lot of references about this. There are other, and I'm not alone here, I was one of the first to talk about this, but there are guys like Mark Hyman, the director of functional medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, who just wrote a book with an awesome title. It's called Eat Fat, Get Thin. And yes, it actually works like that. As long as the fat isn't highly processed industrial seed oils, because if you eat that fat, you get stupid, and then you get fat. <laughs> the brain is made out of water. And after that, it's made out of fat. And it's got almost no sugar in it at all. And it has zero kale in the brain. <laughs> zero kale. <laughs> so... The biggest innovation that I'm known for is Bulletproof Coffee. And it was my great pleasure to offer this to the world because I noticed something that didn't make any sense to me. I am a curious engineering systems thinker guy. Everything I do is a system. And I went to Tibet in 2004. I wanted to learn meditation from the masters. I wanted to understand all that crazy stuff that honestly didn't make that much sense to me, but I had a few months and thought, I right, this will be neat. So I went there without a lot of plans and sort of did the thing everyone does now. Um, and I was in a very remote part of Tibet. It's called Mount Kailash. It takes five days in a four-wheel drive on dirt roads to get there. You're driving over these 18,000-foot passes and... Uh, one of the most epic and amazing things I've ever done. Uh, Mount Kailash is the headwaters for the Ganges and Indus rivers, and it's where a lot of people at the height of summer uh, from either the, the Buddhist religions or the Hindu religions go because their gods live at the top of this mountain. You're not allowed to go to the top, but you walk in a circle around it to sort of pay your respects. And a lot of people go there to die, which is why the, the ravens there are like this big. <laughs> Because the Tibetan sky burial is what you think it is. <laughs> and so this is a place on Earth unlike many other places. The problem was I was there in November, and it was 10 degrees below zero, and there were maybe 10 people on the whole mountain. 
but I wanted to do it, and it seemed like a cool idea. Uh, I've also had arthritis in my knees since I was 14. I have a screw in my right knee after three surgeries, and my knees were not as strong as they are today because I hadn't figured out the biological underpinnings that I know today. So I was struggling. I was really cold, and I went into this guest house, which is a euphemism for mud hut, and with beds that are at least two feet shorter than I am. Um, I went into this place, and this little Tibetan lady, I saw her picture, and she's like this tall, and she gives me this little bowl of yak butter tea, which is exactly as disgusting as it sounds. It's yak butter mixed with tea and a little salt. And the typical nomadic family carries everything on the back of a yak, and they have this 10-pound butter churn. And every morning, they take their hot tea, and they pour in the churn, and they have some butter, and then they spend five minutes going cha-chunk, cha-chunk, cha-chunk before they'll drink it. I'm like, an intelligent Tibetan would clearly be like, okay, your breakfast is going to be yak butter tea and barley flour. Why don't you just get a gop of butter, stick it in flour, and pour the tea on top like a sane person and save yourself all the churning, for God's sake, right? That was my thinking, because hey, I'm, I'm American. <laughs> and they always did that. So I, I drank this, this glass of tea, and within five minutes, I'm like, I feel amazing with more. So I had 25 cups. These were little cups. So it wasn't like, you know, a big gulp cup. Exactly, because I'm American, right? And my brain turned on. I've done altitude mountaineering in the Andes and Himalayas. You always feel like death at 18,000 feet. And here I am. I'm like, oh, I felt so good. Never felt like a good altitude. And I remember thinking, this is weird. And why? And I came back. Uh, to California, and on the way back, uh, I took I went by some other Tibetan places, and I realized the wealthy Tibetans had two yaks, and they had a car battery and a blender. <laughs> Does that make any sense? No. Of all the consumer goods you could have in like the land of big sky, where like you can see everything, and, and there's there's no infrastructure, and in a big city has like ten families in it, and there's blenders not necessarily TVs. They knew something. So I came back and I started experimenting and eventually came up with the recipe for Bulletproof Coffee, which is coffee beans that are free of a toxin that specifically damages mitochondria. Uh, you wouldn't know this, but the US and Canada have no laws about this toxin in coffee, but all of Europe, all of China, all of Japan, and most of the world have laws that say, if this toxin is present in meaningful amounts, don't, don't drink the coffee. So the world's most moldy coffee comes to Canada and the US and we drink it. And then two hours later when our mitochondria take a hit, we get sugar cravings and sugar and we flip each other off and stuff like that. Except here we say we're so we say we're sorry. I'm still working on that, but uh, I've almost got it right. Uh, but this actually happens. So there's a special kind of coffee without that, and you blend it with butter. And for almost 10 years now, it's 12 now, it's tormented me that I couldn't tell you why blending mattered and why I cannot eat a stick of butter like a Snickers bar and drink some coffee and feel the same. But in a book coming out early next year that actually tells why there's a biochemical reason for this. And it's all about your mitochondria. It's about what fat does to the body. And the other ingredient that's in Bulletproof Coffee is called brain octane oil. And brain octane oil is an extract from coconut oil that raises fat burning molecules in your body five times higher than you can normally get them from eating coconut oil or butter or anything else. And when you shift into fat burning, every time you, you turn the crank on your little power production plants in your cells, 
you get 147 electrons instead of 36. If you've ever been on a three-day fast or you've tried a very high-fat, low-carb, extremist diet, after a few days, you reach a state of clarity that is really unusual. You're like, oh, I feel really good. I can't believe I'm not hungry. Um, every religious tradition known to man that's been going on for a while has fasting, at least at some time of the year, because fasting triggers this state. I don't have a problem, though. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't have time to feel cold and crappy and yell at people because I'm having an energy crash. So you can use that oil, either in your food or in your coffee, to short-circuit this problem in the brain of not having enough energy to suddenly have a lot of energy. And this stuff is, is it's changed my life. I took one of the most powerful smart drugs known to man called modafinil. Uh, it's limitless. The movie was based on this drug loosely. Uh, it got me through business school. Uh, it made me a better meditator. I quit taking the drug four years ago because I managed to get enough electrons generated in my brain. And the scary thing here is that innovators, the, the people, and you know who they are in your company, if you have a company big enough like this, the, the person who just knows stuff, who somehow does this, those are unusual brains, and those brains are actually, they require more energy than a normal brain. They're more sensitive to these swings. So take a bunch of coders, and there's a reason Microsoft has eight bulletproof coffee stands on campus for their software developing development people, because the people who are creating knowledge, they're, they're sucking energy in, and they're using it to create, they've got to have a steady supply of that. And that is one of the hacks there. But if you were to not do that at all, and if you were to simply, in your next meal, say, I'm not going to have the sugar, because sugar does inhibit mitochondrial function, especially over time, and you were to say instead, I'm going to choose an undamaged fat, butter from grass-fed cows, avocados, coconut oil, nuts that haven't been roasted in cottonseed and soybean oil and covered in MSG and sugar might be a good choice. And to do a lot of that, I recommend on the, the diet, and by the way, for free back there, we have the, the one-page thing put on, you know, on your fridge. It's an infographic straight out of Silicon Valley style. It's everything written in my book in an image, and, it, and you can just have it, or you can download it for free from the webpage that tells you, if you want your brain to work, eat more from these a couple of bulletproof foods. There's a list of suspect foods there. For some people, they will actually mess you up. For other people, you'll be fine. And then there are some that are called kryptonite foods. Just don't eat that stuff. Like everyone who can afford to be in this room today, you never have to eat hydrogenated fat or tofu again. In fact, they inhibit your performance. They're bad for you. And there's just no excuse for that. So I basically sort these out on a really good, maybe good, really bad. So you don't have to do a lot of thinking. You don't have to know why all the decisions were made. But you have a framework, a roadmap, which is what it's called. Oh, and pick one up on your way out and, and try it out. You can feel the difference on the first day. And where we get a little bit mixed up in the middle here is you wouldn't know it, but about 20% of people have a genetic sensitivity to something called the nightshade family. The nightshade family includes potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, bell peppers, cayenne, jalapenos, things like that. One in five. There's people in this room. How many of you know you have a nightshade sensitivity? One, two, three, four. Okay. Where are the other people? If we're playing the odds, there's people who don't know what's going on. I'm one, by the way. 
So if you're one of those people, that's why nightshades are on the suspect list, you probably consume nightshades every day in one of those, uh, in one of those food groups. And you probably also have musculoskeletal pain that's become a normal part of your life. You're probably like my father, you get another hip. I had his first hip replaced. And finally, at 74, I convinced him to try not eating nightshades. <laughs> and he called me up a week later and said, I don't think I'm going to need to replace my other hip. Like, that's awesome. If you don't know that a food might cause something for you, we're not all the same. We're genetically different. We actually have different mitochondrial DNA that came to us from our mothers and our mother's mothers. There's only seven strains of it, but there's lots of mutations. So that stuff really matters. And if you want to create innovation in your company, the simplest thing you can do is do what Google does and provide them free lunch. But don't skimp on the budget for a free lunch. Buy them the nicest food you can get. And I don't mean the nicest tasting food you can get, because that's Pizza Hut. <laughs> I mean the nicest food that is biologically compatible with human beings. And when you do that, you will see that the innovation in your company goes up. Get them the good coffee, because coffee that causes a crash in anxiety two hours after you get it for people isn't appropriate. You're paying an engineer a hundred grand a year, and you're going to serve them bad coffee? Are you kidding me? Like, that is a crime against your shareholders, if nothing else. It's just not okay. And I say that as a former engineer, and still kind of a geek, and well, I run a coffee company, so I'm biased. But... <laughs> This matters, and if you increase the quality of the food in your environment, and you increase the novelty in your environment, and you give people the opportunity to go outside every now and then to get some air and some light, you will see the fruits in your innovation. And of course you get bad business processes out of the way, but if people are free to have enough energy, spare energy in the system, we will automatically use that to solve problems. And if we don't have enough energy, we will automatically use whatever spare energy we have to hoard more energy and to do things in our own best interests and to basically be in the fight or flight mode, the take mode versus the give mode. It all comes down to the little bacteria that run you and whether or not they're well fed and well cared for. You care for them, you get innovation. You don't care for them, you food. That's what it comes down to. Can I answer some questions for you? about Silicon Valley, about innovation, about innovation in Canada, which is being destroyed by our lack of e-commerce and shipping right now, uh, or anything else. I, I follow your website a bit, and you can log a bit, and it amazes me that you have either enough energy to do all of that, or is there like a team of minions behind you that are doing the research, the, the video production, the, like everything, like how, how do you manage all of that? Uh, the question is, uh, yeah, the gentleman follows uh, the Bulletproof website and is like, how do you possibly do all that stuff? Like, do you have minions? And uh, Brock is a, a minion here, Brock. Uh, Brock does the video editing. Uh, he's our only video editor. No, no, he, he's, a, he's a very powerful minion. Yeah, he lives in Vancouver. The Vancouver minions are, are strong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do have a team at, at Bulletproof. We have a coffee shop in Santa Monica. Um, that does uh, triple the revenue uh, per square foot than the Starbucks team thought it would do, and I hired three of the first ten Starbucks people uh, to help me put the store together, and one of the ten is my head of commercial operations. Uh, I have a, a content team, but the research, I actually do the research. <laughs> I do it because uh, this is the most important thing I know how to do. Before I did this, 
I would have been standing in front of a classroom of 50 engineers in Silicon Valley in San Jose, teaching them about how a, a bit of traffic gets from your web browser to the back end of Google and back, and every step at every level of it, because I'm inherently curious and because everything is a system for the way my brain is wired. I just wanted to hack the system because my feet hurt all the time because I was old when I was young, my knees hurt, my brain wasn't working, I had gas all the time, and I weighed 300 pounds and I smelled bad. Like, I don't know, it was pretty bad. So the research though, it's all in here. And the way I represent information in my brain for reasons that may be genetic or maybe because I learned to read it 18 months, uh, is that I store everything in a, in a 3D picture, I'm very visual that way, so I can recall things there that are really useful and I can connect ideas in, a, in an unusual way that really helps me be an innovator, uh, but it also means I'm probably not going to match your face and your name ever again, even if you know we're close friends, so <laughs> there are weaknesses with this, but it, it, there is a team supporting Bulletproof, uh, but the research is, is what I do. Can you just explain the comment you made about e-commerce? The comment about e-commerce, this is something I maybe should have led with. When I go to the States, I can have any item I want within 24 hours. Maybe within an hour if you're in a big city. And I just go to a web page and I click a button and it arrives. And then I can innovate with that. I can get five different things that are unrelated and I can recombine them and make something and test an idea and discard it or take it and move on. In Canada, if you want to order something, you might get it two weeks later, you'll pay three times as much for shipping, but I don't care how much I pay for shipping. I will give someone $50 to send me a pair of socks from the US if that's the only place that their socks are there, and they still won't send the socks, and when they do arrive, they'll have been carefully opened by, by Canada Customs to smell them before I can get them. And, and it's unacceptable, and I believe the Canadian economy is in trouble, because with a postal service like ours, and an incredibly ineffective border agency that's gotten worse since I moved here, I cannot get the tools of innovation to my home, oftentimes within 30 days, and I have a team of three administrative assistants who do it, and it's getting to the point that I'm looking at partnering with a, another YPO member uh, at buying half a helicopter, because it's only $360 an hour to run the goddamn helicopter to Bellingham to pick up my Amazon Prime shipments to get them back to Canada so I can do the things I need to do. I didn't know what I'm talking about this. I'm just box breathing now. But that's, that's what my comment is about. You cannot get the tools of innovation because they are blocked by bureaucracy. It is, it is embarrassing that a first world nation full of amazing people like Canada has an e-commerce system like this. I also spend 10 times more to create and license one of my products to get it approved to be sold in Canada than I do in the US. Newsflash, the market is 10% as big here. The only reason I have a warehouse in Canada as an entrepreneur is because I live here. Because if I was a hard-hearted entrepreneur, I would never sell anything in Canada because it, I, I make less money, a lot less money selling it in Canada because of the huge regulatory hurdles here. And so, yes, I don't want to sound too much like, like Donald Trump, because that would make me sad. I do, nice hair though. <laughs> but um, that's what I meant there. We, we have an issue in this country around being legally and systematically allowed to buy stuff and get it quickly, because that is one of the major things that lets us out of it. 
question? Yeah. I guess uh, my question is on the topic of money. Um, is, are you looking for money because you've got some new products on the horizon that you're, that you're playing with, or is it more of an expansion of what you're trying to do? I am expanding the product portfolio in advance of a book launch in April. Uh, the last book, or the book before the last of the New York Times, and I'm forecasting really big book sales on this one, and I want to have the product in line. I also found out that I accidentally sold about 100,000 copies of my book in Japan with no marketing. <laughs> I got an email one day going, holy crap. It took me a year to do that in Canada plus the US. In Japan, I did it in four months without even knowing. Uh, so I'm flying there in October to do our, our launch in Japan. What, and, October yeah. what? Mm, 17th, 20th, somewhere around there. Is that going to be there? Oh, are you going to be in Japan? No, just before that. All right, for the, yeah, I think it's around there. I want to say 17th, but uh, yeah, drop me a note if you're going to be there. We might overlap. Uh, and I'm doing a three or four day book signing in Japan. And so we've got inventory for the launch. And I am also approved nationally in Whole Foods. So there's some inventory requirements. And uh, uh, I've grown the team quite a bit in order to support this. The guy who launched Lunchables, the $700 million line of junk food for kids. Uh, is paying for his sins right now. He's like, I can never do that again. I made life better for moms, and I like made a lot of children not very well. Like, like I, I can't. It's not in my soul to do that anymore. So we're taking the dark art of consumer packaged goods and using it to disrupt big food by serving food that actually makes people full instead of make them have cravings. Uh, so hiring people like that. Uh, I have the the lady who launched and ran the Via Starbucks Instant Coffee line is running my product team. Uh, a guy with a $400 million uh, line uh, on his, or quota on his head from Mill for Now Bakery is running my grocery sales team. So we're a real company. And to your question about minions, you want to innovate, like you hire the A players and you pay them more than you make. And uh, every one of a team like that uh, is going to, to move the needle very quickly. So Bulletproof has grown uh, very, very quickly. And I gotta tell you, as a former head of evangelism, where my job was to get an audience excited about antivirus software, like this is shooting fish in a barrel. Like I'm talking about the stuff we're made of, and I'm talking about human performance, things people care about. So like bringing a team like this together, it's more fun that way, but, but that's why it's, it's team growth and product expansion and geographic expansion and channel expansion all at the same time. It's something about timing though. Because, because I was a co-founder of a company 12 years ago that was, was um, looking at genetic scans of people's metabolic genes oh, cool. and, and uh, doing specific um, vitamin supplements to meet uh -huh. those genes. Yeah. And we just we ran out of funding so, because so, it was just ahead of the curve. So 12 years ago, he had a company that was doing a genetic analysis. And mass customizing the vitamins. And mass customizing vitamins. So, so 12 years ago, I registered the domain vitamintest.com and I looked at the same business model. And uh, I, I didn't do it, uh, partly just because I like to think my sense of timing has gotten better. Uh, back when I I did that first e-commerce play, Entrepreneur Magazine interviewed me. It's very, I'm like this pimply 300 pound kid, like, who oh, Entrepreneur Magazine? This is so cool. And they asked me, how long will it be before we stop sending out paper catalogs? And I'm like, oh, within five years. <laughs> that was like 1995. <laughs> you still get a stack of paper catalogs in the mail. So over time, uh, your ability to, to see trends changes. And I'm lucky that I cut my teeth in Silicon Valley, where like disruptive change happens about every 18 to 24 months. 
Uh, and I've had, I've worked with Clayton Christensen, the guy who coined the term disruptive innovation. I've, I've worked with his consulting firm, and I've disrupted and been disrupted and all that. So I, I think the time is right now. The time is right now because the e-commerce infrastructure is in place where what would have cost you 12 years ago $50 million in infrastructure, you can do for $5,000 now. But like the, the amount of compute capacity of network is unimaginable right now. And I spend right now on a monthly basis, I need $1,200 <laughs> on spacing, on bandwidth and all that stuff. I would have quoted as a sales engineer uh, in the early days at Access Communications, I would have quoted a company like Bulletproof half a million dollars a month. I mean, like, like that would have been a real bill. And we had to become our own merchant bank for e-commerce clearance. And yes, it's, a, it's, it's easier than it's ever been. And the problem with, with it being easy is the signal-to-noise ratio for product is looking like social media. Like, there are a lot of people. Well, I have, like, $74. I think I'll make a product, and I'm not going to think about it. I'm, just, I'm not going to do my research. I'm not going to follow regulatory. And then you get people selling some weird stuff out there, and then you have a wave of people uh, today who are just white people. So you see like 50 different companies selling exactly the same pills or exactly the same widget with these different names. And that creates market confusion. And that's why I believe that like the era of trustworthy brands is on its way up right now. And my time was very fortunate with Bulletproof on that. Uh, and also, like when I launched the coffee, I had no idea if anyone would ever want to drink a coffee without mold toxins, but I can tell you it works. I feel much different and I'm actually afraid to drink coffee from the normal coffee companies because I feel like crap when I do it. Like I, I know there's a difference because I sense it. That's all the science I needed. Now I understand why and I did that and I can replicate it. And I just did that because I like coffee. <laughs> Maybe someone will buy it apparently it works. I think your social media marketing is brilliant. Thank you. It works. I appreciate that. Right, thank you for the presentation. I'm Thomas from Mad Ventures. Uh, what's your thoughts on blue bottle coffee? Thomas from Adventures. Some of my thoughts on Blue Bottle Coffee. Blue Bottle is one of the, the early, what we call the third wave of coffee. So the first wave of coffee was make it cheap and Hills Brothers and things like that. And the, the second wave of coffee was basically the Starbucks, make it about community and make it better than the really bad stuff. But let's not really focus on quality. Uh, it's, it's just better than it was, but we'll focus on consistency and feel. And then the Blue Bottles and the other companies like Intelligentsia came out and they said, let's focus on the experience of coffee and let's focus on the provenance of the coffee. And then, uh, so I, I think actually the Blue Bottle Mid Street location in San Francisco is a work of art. Like, I just want to go there and I just want to look at all the glass piping and incredibly scientific apparatus and then they've done good marketing that way. Uh, and the problem is that all, for all the sexiness of third wave coffee, they all go to the same dirty warehouses and they all buy coffee in big burlap bags that were all processed by the same thing and they're all graded. And they're all graded just based on two things, cost and flavor. And the innovation that, that Bulletproof has is around actually, it's about human performance and purity. I'd rather drink a cup of coffee that is only a seven out of 10 that makes me feel like a great golden god than a cup of coffee that tastes like 10 out of 10 and gives me a headache and makes me jittery three hours later. And so that's the difference between these third wave coffee people and whatever you want to call it bulletproof. But I, I blew out beautiful stuff and I believe they just raised $45 million today uh, to, to expand just in Boston. Like it's expensive. And I've got my two stores in LA, uh, the eight on Microsoft's campus, we're doing a couple in Seattle. 
Uh, so if I want to go that route, I'm looking at you know, hedge fund dollars. I'm not sure, though, I need to have coffee stores on every corner. I might just need a few meccas, New York, LA, uh, San Francisco, places like that. And that's part of the ongoing strategy I'm working on right now. Any other questions? How are you uh, finding or responding to people that are promoting that they're selling Bulletproof Coffee, but they're not a representative of you, or uh, you know, they're just promoting Bulletproof Coffee, but it's not necessarily a quality? Uh, how do I respond to people who say they're uh, selling bulletproof coffee when they're just taking coffee and putting butter in it? Uh, I'm honored, actually. Uh, the, uh, imitation is uh, is a source of sincerest form of flattery. There you go, sincerest form of flattery. Uh, thanks. I, I must have had some other coffees. I couldn't remember that. I almost never heard those words. But I also have an in-house legal counsel, and <laughs> so I usually respond with, "Hey guys." Um, I appreciate the support. I love it that you like this idea. Would you like to be a wholesale partner? And you'd be amazed how many small coffee shops are like, you know, I could actually sell the real beans and I could put brain octane and, and like people will feel it. Like, okay, uh, let's do it. And then the ones who don't, they usually say, I'm really sorry. And then we tell them, could you just like call it butter coffee? That's the generic version. But, you know, Coca-Cola isn't going to allow you to sell Coca-Cola when you put sugar in water. Uh, and it's not the same thing. So you have to be selling the same thing and I'll enable that for you. Uh, and I, I do it respectfully. Um, there are some egregious knockoffs who are doing it uh, on purpose, with, you know, a, with malicious intent. And those guys, like, I'm happy to take them down. The cool thing is, they have to pay uh, an hourly fee for their attorneys. I don't, because <laughs> it's in house. I have DLA Piper represents me. I have big guns when I need them. But no, it's a lot cheaper for me to pester someone than it is for them to pester me. So the economics will be out there. <laughs> Uh, maybe two more questions. I'll be respectful of reading. I have no idea if Stephen just used a cane and pulled me off stage. Yeah, I think there was another question. Another question? All right, one more. I'm happy to free your evening. I noticed that you don't indicate organic anywhere in your, your advertising, and yet that's also a factor in coffee. Ah, good question. Uh, the question is uh, I don't indicate organic in my packaging. Uh, yes, I'm charging a premium price actually above organic. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> which is which is kind of cool. And that covers the cost of my lab testing. And the reason for that is that I am going direct to source. So the plantations that I work with in Colombia and in Guatemala, we install infrastructure to process the coffee differently than coffee is normally processed. And it is not economically feasible for a small plantation the size you work with to get organic certified because the organic certification is like the Canadian Postal Service. <laughs> uh, or, or, or worse. Or worse, maybe. So they'll spend one or two years' income in order to become organic certified in order to get a buck a pound more for their green coffee, and they lose money. Uh, the main plantation in Guatemala has been in the same family for like four generations and it's never been sprayed. So we have passive organic, but then you use that word, the FDA gets all up in your stuff. Uh, so we're Rainforest Alliance certified, and I make organic uh, because I, the, the, coffee, uh, the, the coffee reach that I have now is it's many, many container loads. And I, I, I can and probably will get an organic certification, but it will not change the product one iota. It's simply a marketing thing. I can tell you I, I take better care of the soil 
in my plantations, the ones I work kind of on, in my partners, than most organic things. You know, like I, I really care about that. And I live on an organic farm. I grow my own food. Like I, I take it seriously. I, I am the system that starts in the soil. And basically Do you ever use any of Rudolf Steiner's material on biodynamic organic gardening? Ooh, question about do I use Rudolf Steiner's and stuff? My kids are in a Waldorf school, which is Steiner inspired. Yeah. I don't bury boar's heads full of cow's poop in my garden, if that's what you're asking, which is a Rudolf Steiner biodynamic practice. But the core set of biodynamic practices are used by the very best vineyards and the very best pot growers and the very best coffee growers because it works. Planting according to the, the moon cycle really matters because your mitochondria follow the moon. They were born floating in the ocean. They follow the solar cycle, they follow the lunar cycle, and that's why you do too, and that's why every emergency room is full on a full moon, because we're still little bacteria doing what the moon and the sun said, and our plants are the same way. You plant them at the wrong time, they don't grow the same. So Steiner was, was a very interesting and crazy innovator kind of guy. On that note, I think that, that was all of our questions. Thank you for your time and attention tonight. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.